0: We are in the third week of uh, our our portion of our apocalypse series on the book of Daniel. And uh, so this is going to be a lot of fun today, but I have to warn you right up front, uh, this is going to be very different. It's going to be a different kind of Sunday. And the reason is because usually I'm up here and I yell and I scream and I flap my wings and I jump up and down and uh, all of you then are silent and don't give me any love and um, did I say that? I didn't mean to sneak that in. So, um, so, so this, this, that, that's typically what happens, you know, and it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a real, like, you felt like you, you know, heard a sermon. And uh, today's going to be a little bit different because we're going to be doing some good old-fashioned Bible study today. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but I, I want to warn you right up front, it's, it's going to feel a little bit more like a classroom than a sermon. Um, so I want to welcome all of you to Emmaus Road School of Theology. And uh, thanks for, for enrolling. And uh, you can, you know... Pay your dues at the end. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. That wasn't in the notes. Okay, so um, so what I want to do, just to kind of get you all prepared for the classroom, make sure you're well connected, make sure your thinking brains are on, is I want to tell you some jokes, okay? Make sure you get them, because if you don't get them, you need to you know, hone in a little bit more and get them. Okay, so here's, here, here we go. If life gives you melons, then you are dyslexic. There's going to be some groaners. These are all groaners, by the way. So, so even if you groan, if you don't laugh, then I know you're with me. Okay? What do the traffic lights say to the car? Don't look. I'm changing. Oh. This, okay. This one. This is the worst groaner of all. What do the green grape say to the purple grape? Breathe. Just a little bit of joy on your Sunday morning, you know. You know, you can have fun in church. That's a good thing. You have to do that. So uh, this, is, this one's amazing. Okay. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. <laughs> that is good stuff, man. That is Holy Spirit-inspired jokes right there. That is just good. Okay. So you guys are with me. You all you you understood those jokes. So you're with me. So you're ready for the classroom. We got a lot to do this morning uh, before we read our passage. Okay. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter nine, uh, starting with verse twenty through the end of the chapter. Uh, those of you that have smartphones or tablets, you can check out U version. It'll be right there for you. You can write down your own notes. We encourage you to do that. Uh, but we got a lot of work to do before we get to that passage. Okay. So so let's get started now. We've been talking about this series called Apocalypse. Uh, Apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature in many ways go hand in hand. Uh, Sometimes they're one and the same. Other times they're just a little bit distinct. Uh, But as we were preparing for this series of messages many of you uh, were anticipating that i would be telling you about all how the you know the how the world is going to shake down and end and i was going to pinpoint a date and all that stuff and then we'd you know get in our water coolers and buy groceries and everything would be great and so that's kind of what you were expecting uh, but that's not what we've gotten so far but but let me tell you this most modern prophetic messages are based upon the presumption that the Bible gives us a map or a timeline of events in the world so that we could draw a timeline, find ourselves on it or pinpoint ourselves on that timeline, and then know the next events that are going to happen and so when we came to this series uh, about apocalyptic literature and about prophecy that 's what many of you were expecting, and that 's because many that, that is the that is the primary sort of prophetic diet that is given in our culture. Now, this viewpoint is, is a viewpoint called dispensationalism. I told you I was going to take you to school, okay? So here we are, dispensationalism. Now, this view uh, says that history is broken into different dispensations. Now, some of you are like, I'm already lost, okay? I thought this was a one-on-one class. What in the world is a dispensation? Dispensations are a period of history that is distinct from another based on how God interacts with human beings in that dispensation. Are you with me? So dispensation is a period of time, and this view says that what makes it distinct is how God interacts with human history within that particular period of time. So I want to draw you a very simplistic uh, dispensation framework of Scripture. Huh? Isn't that good? You guys ready for this? Okay, so it starts with a big box. Now, I think I can draw a box. I'm not a very good artist, but I can draw a box. Um, And and it goes like this. The first dispensation is the dispensation of the law. And that goes from the beginning of, of time in Scripture, Genesis 1, all the way through to the establishment of the church. That is the age of the law. So the church is established in Acts chapter 2, so the age of the law would go to Acts chapter 1. Okay, so then... Once we get out of the dispensation of the law, and the, the law, the dispensation of the law is a way of saying that the way in which God interacts with humankind is through, by, is, is by giving his law. Uh, all this set of rules, all of these things, people realize, oh, we can't follow the law. And so there's a sacrificial system made up so that, that they can still be in right relationship with God. If you would like to know more about the age of the law, then I would encourage you today in your spare time to read Genesis 1 through Acts 1. I just filled your Sunday. Okay. So after the age of the law is starting with Acts chapter 2 all the way to Revelation 20. This is considered to be the age of grace. Okay. So what happens is after the establishment of the church, of course, Acts chapter 1 is after the gospels. And so Jesus has died, been resurrected. His followers are now established. And so now God does not relate to us on the basis of the law in which we cannot fully fulfill on our own power but now God relates to us through grace the grace of the son that he has given to us this is also known as the age of the church now if you're really paying attention and i know you are cuz you understood my jokes this would be the dispensation that we're in now yes okay we're experiencing the grace of god through his son jesus christ the the church is alive and active in the world now you know some of you or some of you may have heard like doom and gloom news about the church i think this is a great period of history for the church uh, we have tons of opportunity to, for us to really share the gospel and present the good news and the grace of god in jesus christ now this takes us all the the age of the church will last dispensationalists say all the way to revelation chapter 20 which is describes god's kingdom coming down and so what we have in the next dispensation then is Revelation 20 through the end of the Bible, 22. So just a couple chapters there at the end. this dispensation is the dispensation of the kingdom. And that is a way of describing that God's kingdom in Revelation 20 and 22 is fully established. Uh, heaven comes down, the new, new city, the new Jerusalem, God's new creation is established. And then those uh, who know Christ and have come to know Christ are live forever in the kingdom. And then those who don't then are cast into the darkness or, as Revelation says, the lake of everlasting fire. Okay, so that's dispensationalism. Thanks for coming today. (laughs) Okay, now with dispensationalism, if I say that again, I'm going to get tongue-tied. With this view of (laughs) prophecy is a particular view of eschatology. (laughs) good night, Andy. Give us a break. Okay, eschatology is the study or system of belief about the end times. Many of you thought when we were going through an apocalyptic series that I was going to be giving you a lot of eschatology, how everything is going to play out in the end. Whatever system of belief that you have about the end times, that is your eschatology. So, for those who are dispensationalists, there comes with that a particular eschatology or a particular view of the end times. Are you guys just having a great time? Because I am. Okay, I'm having a lot of fun. All right. Well, so let me draw you another map of... See, I'm I'm hitting you with all kinds of terms, and you guys are going to hate me by the end of today. You may hate me after I say this. I'm going to draw a... Uh, chart of pre tribulation, premillennialism <laughs> on the dispensation for the eschatology. <sighs> okay, welcome. I might change the name of this school because I don't like having my na- the, our name attached to this. So maybe w- we won't call it the Emmaus Road School of Theology. We'll call it the Timberline School. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Timberline, if you're listening, we love you. We really do, okay? All right, here's a particular view of eschatology. Belief about the end times. And this is the pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. Okay, it's another box. I don't see many of you taking notes. Okay, so on this side is the first advent. Advent literally means coming. So when we celebrate advent, we celebrate... The first coming of Christ, the, his birth, and we anticipate the second advent, that is the second coming. So, just a little bit of, of Christmas theology for you. That's called Christmasology. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up now. Okay, so here's the first advent, here's uh, eternity, here's the cross of Jesus, here's some lines, and then a line, and then a line. This line is the second coming. And this is for the church, capital C church. This, uh, in one word, is rapture. Okay? So, first advent, the cross, then Jesus comes back for the church, which is the rapture. This, then, in here is the tribulation. Are these terms familiar? More familiar than what you've been exposed to so far, right? Tribulation, rapture. Okay, so then here is a line that represents the second coming with the church. That is, Christ comes back with all those that have been raptured. And then that establishes the millennium. Millennium. I think that's right. And then here is the final judgment. Okay, so this is now, now the the way that these um, sort of eschatologies are named are based upon when the rapture is placed within the timeline. Okay, so this is pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. That's where we get the name. Make sense? Pre-pre. There's also like pre-post, post, and amillennialism, which is like, This is all the same thing. They would just like draw a box and be like millennium. And then like that's all millennialism. Okay. (sighs) Now I said that we were going somewhere. And now we're going. Okay. This view... This view, dispensationalism, along with this particular view of of eschatology or end times, it was made popular in the 1970s uh, by a guy named Hal Lindsey with his book, Late Great Planet Earth. And then it was made extremely popular in the 1990s by the Left Behind series. Many of you have those on your bookshelves, movies, board game, children's series, you know, because it's not about the money. And then... um, so central to this view, way of, of reading and understanding scripture is this: is, is Daniel chapter nine. That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, we got there. We got there. Central to this. Sorry, sorry. Central to this framework is Daniel chapter nine, and was. <laughs> So some believe that the, the, these four or five verses that we're going to look at or within the passage that we're going to look at are, are to be consider, considered the center of all biblical prophecy. That is to say that if we're going to understand or, 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 or see any kind of other prophecy in the Bible, we have to understand the prophetic framework that's given to us in Daniel chapter 9, and it is called the 70 weeks or the 77s. Okay? seventy. 7s not 711 but 77s. Okay, so it's re- it's located in Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you just a little. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Last week I read the whole chapter of Daniel chapter 7 to you and it, and and we're just not going to read the whole chapter again, but I want to I want to get us to the point that we're going to read, which is starting in verse 20. Okay, so the chapter starts out with saying that Daniel has a perception There's something that Daniel perceives. He sees something. He, He sees God at work. He thinks that God is up to something. And so it says that he has this perception. Now his reaction to the perception, as soon as he thinks that he sees God at work, as soon as he seems to have discerned what God is doing, he immediately goes to prayer. And what he prays, based on the perception that he has, is a prayer of penitence to, toward God, where he says, God, please forgive me for my sin, but then he goes even further than that. He, he asks forgiveness, not just for his personal sin, but for his corporate sin. He says, God, as a nation, my people, all together, we have been sinful toward you. And so, God, would you please, uh, he ends the prayer by saying, would you please listen, would you please forgive, and then would you please act on our behalf? And so this is what's happening. Now, he's in the middle of this prayer, and and, and he's, he's going, he, he's 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 praying like crazy based on the perception that he has. And then while he is praying, literally an interruption to his prayer, the messenger, the angel, Gabriel, shows up and tells him about his perception. Okay? That's where we're at. And then I want to read what the angel Gabriel says to him. Okay? And uh, then we'll just see if we can make any sense out of dispensation, eschatology, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism, all kinds of stuff. All right? All right, all right, here it is. Daniel chapter nine, starting with verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to God, to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now he instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And as soon as you begin to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal, up, uh, to, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So, know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, uh, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt. With streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the sixty-two sevens, sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will have come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And the desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many of, the, with many of one seven. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, that was encouraging. Let's try to make some sense of this. Now, scholars agree that the numbers, these 77s or these 70 weeks, uh, scholars agree pretty much across the board that these are... Some, these are uh, at the face of it, these are symbolic numbers. In other words, when we come across seventy sevens or 70 weeks, scholars agree that we are to understand one day as being equal to one year. So when you have seven sevens, what we're really talking about is a period of 490 years that the angel Gabriel is trying to give Daniel a handle on. And so scholars agree with this symbolic use of numbers. What they don't agree upon is what they mean. So, the traditional view, and by traditional I mean what has been understood for for a lot of history leading up to modern culture, the traditional view was that Daniel was referring to 490 years of Israel's history that has already long passed and ended with the desecration of the temple in 168 B.C. Or, depending on when you start the clock of the 490 years, it's possible that it ended with the coming of Christ. It just depends on when you start the 490 years. Now, let me take this this opportunity to say that even in the quote, traditional view, and that's my classification, by the way. Uh, the, in, within the traditional view, it becomes very sticky on when we should we really start the clock of the 490 years, and, and when does it really end, and is there, a, a, does the text speak of any kind of pause or, or uh, period of a, a, a gap in between when the clock would start or stop, and all of these things. And so, the trouble with trying to nail down dates in the Bible is exactly this. It can be really tricky to know when the clock starts and stops and you can twist numbers to come up with pretty much any sort of outcome that you desire. Which is what which, by the way, is any time that someone says they've cracked the Bible code and they know when Jesus is coming back, please take that with a grain of salt, if that. Because scripture clearly states that no one will know the time or the hour, but he will come like a thief in the night. And the the bottom line of scripture over and over and over again is that we ought to live ready. Amen? Okay, so so anytime we get into these ideas of, of numbers and knowing exactly this, it becomes very, very difficult to nail down. Now, the dispensationalist view, uh, which started in the early 1900s with a guy named, last named Darby, uh, this, this became the center of the prophetic framework for the entire Bible. And so the, you sort of have the traditional view it was done, it's over with. Uh, but then you have the dispensationalist view, which says this is absolutely central to understanding any sort of prophecy in the Bible. And so what we have to understand. So let me unpack that. A a little bit for you. Uh, The dispensationalist view, this, is that God has a prophetic stopwatch that is ticking down to midnight, so to speak. Now, uh, I don't know if God has a prophetic stopwatch or not, but I imagine that if he does, it looks something like the clock tower in Back to the Future when Marty McFly is trying to get back to October 24th, 1986. Yeah? That's just what I kind of, I mean, there's nothing in the scripture that says, you know, there's no, like, secret code that reveals Marty McFly or anything like that. It's just that's kind of how I picture it. Okay. So, the stopwatch, though, ticked down until the last seven years. So, the last week. In other words, uh, this view would say we have completed 489 of these prophetic years but when the anointed one came, when Jesus came, that, that stopwatch stopped, gave cause or start for the age of the church, and then it will begin again, sorry, again, <laughs> it will begin again at the rapture then the 7 years start okay so there what so the dispensationalist view is that there is now a thousands of years gap known as the age of the church between the start of the prophetic countdown to the continuation it's sort of like uh, god pushed the pause button on his blu-ray player of history because i know that god watches history in high definition <laughs> okay so the seven years is still be, to be completed, according to this view, and will be, uh, and, and actually, we are, are given the details of this seven-year period in the book of Revelation. So this view says, okay, God's prophetic stopwatch was running, running, running. It stopped at the, at the age of the church, or the dispensation of the church, or at the cross, the, the arrival of the anointed one. It will, then you have this gap, insert the church here, and then you have this gap where the rapture will come, the, the clock starts ticking again, the seven years, the seven sevens, that is the, the, tri- the tribulation, the last year of seven. And then this is actually revealed to us in detail as a script in the book of Revelation, starting with roughly chapter 6, running through roughly chapter 18 or 19. Okay, so some of you feel like the way in which I'm painting this view is already sort of predetermined where I stand on all of this based on the terminology that I'm using, like words like script or prophetic stopwatch. These are words that I have borrowed from the people that adhere to this view. So I'm not, I'm not trying to paint it in any kind of point. I'm simply presenting to you that many people adhere to this viewpoint of history and prophecy. Are you with me? Okay. Are you still having fun? Some of you are like, for the first ten minutes I was with you, but now I'm struggling. Okay. So I want I want to make sure that you know that I'm just simply stating what they state when I use words like Revelation being a script or God having a prophetic stopwatch. Okay. Now, let me be clear about something. You can hold this view. Um I, I listen to a lot of sermons. Because I, I, you may have noticed, but on Sunday mornings, I don't get the chance to listen to sermons. And so, <laughs> so, so during the week, I listen to a lot of sermons. And it, it's not uncommon for me to hear pastors share their view and then say, you know, if you don't hold this view, then you're a false prophet. And the scripture warns about false prophets. And, you know, there is a lake of eternal fire waiting for you. Wink, wink. Okay. So, uh, I, so, so let me make sure this is clear. You can hold this view. And I'm not going to call you a false prophet, make fun of you, do anything like that. But you may be wondering, what is my view on all of this? And and here's what I would say. There's nothing in the text in Daniel chapter 9 that would suggest to us that there is a thousands of year gap uh, waiting for the fulfillment of the perception. Uh, I, I just don't see it being there that there's, okay, pause thousands of years for the age of the church and then okay, start again. There's also a significant, te- significant question in the text, the original language, as to whether the anointed one is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself or maybe some other uh, important leader because some translations capitalize the anointed one, others do not. In fact, if yours has a little footnote beside that, you will probably notice that it says an option is whatever it chose not to do in the text. So if it capitalized it in the text, it will say, oh, there's the footnote, there's an option, uh, little a and little o. Uh, And so any translations that choose to capitalize that are making already an interpretive decision. Also, I feel like that seeing prophecy in light of timelines where we could point ourselves out inside of a timeline, and then, based on other scriptural clues, try to patchwork together what we can come to expect in the world. Now, I think that, generally speaking, we could come to expect in the world, but in terms of like pinpointing certain events and pinpointing us on timelines, I think, generally, is a misunderstanding of what prophecy actually is and the purpose of prophecy and apocalyptic literature. Now, some of you are don't like that at all, and some of you are like, I've never heard this before, and you can can start getting behind it, okay? And again, wherever you're at, it's okay, and I told you, today would be different, okay? So let's just continue to embrace that, okay? Prophecy is not about God telling the future. God is in control of the future. So prophecy is not about God sort of like knowing or having some awareness of the future god is is the active force bringing about a particular future. And so if there's a prophetic word, I've told you before, prof- prophecy is a timely word from God for the people of God. So so God, through his prophets in the Old Testament, speaks to a nation who is held captive, who is in the midst of slavery, and, and the prophet says to them, there will be one day when all of this will be undone. There will be one day where the Messiah will come. Do you think that the purpose of, the, of prophesying for the Messiah and a day when all this captivity will end and they will be set free. Do you think the purpose of that was so that the nation of Israel could get out their whiteboards and their markers and start writing a timeline and say, "Oh good, this is where we at, where we're at." Absolutely not. It was to boost their faith and produce something in them right then and right there. It wasn't God telling the future as though he had some sort of awareness of it. It was God being the effective force for the future. I will send a Messiah. Your time of captivity will end. You will be a free people. God's new creation is coming. Come on, somebody. That's the purpose of prophecy, and I think we shortchange it. Again, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with all this. I think this just sort of misses the point. Like, if, if all we're trying to do and if all we think prophecy does is give us a point on a timeline, then, man, we've missed the change that it can produce in us. We've missed the hope it can produce in us. And so prof- that's the purpose of prophecy. apocalyptic literature is meant to bring us to repentance and to reveal to us who God is. Let me give you a modern-day a modern day example of of. of strictly apocalyptic literature. You guys didn't even know this. You didn't know this was apocalyptic literature when you saw it, but in fact, it fits almost every single category of apocalyptic literature, and that is A Christmas Carol. Yeah, Scrooge. That story. That's apocalyptic literature. Do you know that? Here, let me tell you why. Because some of you are like, please do. Scrooge is what? He's Scrooge, you know? And he won't heat his office because he's greedy. And so you got Bob Cratchit working in a cold office. Sometimes the office here at the church is cold. And so my wife says, you're just Bob Cratchit over there. And I'm like, oh, it's all good, you know? That's beside the point. Okay, so so Scrooge is showing, he, he's a Scrooge kind of a guy. He doesn't like Christmas. And so he gets visited by these ghosts, and the ghosts show him images of the past and the present and the future. And do you remember the ghost of Christmas future? And how, how truly horrific that scene is? Do you think that that's a script for Scrooge's necessary future? Or do you think that future was shown to him as a way of producing something in his life in the present? Ha, ha, ha. So when we come to apocalyptic literature, apocalypse literally means to reveal, and that revelation is meant to do something in us right now. It's meant to produce some sort of change in us right now. And so he's showing the, Scrooge is showing these images of the future not as a prescription or a script. These must and will happen, but as a warning to bring him to repentance now and a timely word to produce change in him in the present. That is apocalyptic literature. And we're going to talk more about that when we do our few weeks on Revelation, starting Advent Sunday, December 2nd. So, what is my view? I am not a dispensationalist. I believe that Jesus will return. The dead in Christ will rise. He will finish the work that is happening right now in the world. And that is that he is right now calling us to be partners in establishing his kingdom. That you and I get tastes and foretastes and shadows of what that kingdom will look like in all of its fullness. And that there, I believe that Jesus will return once to fully establish his kingdom that is already breaking in and breaking through. Now, I think that we can see, we could, for example, mark out the Bible as a story and put it in different acts. But that would just be a way of saying, here's the narrative script as it has gone along. God has been the same ever throughout. He's been interacting with people, going always toward the goal of of revealing himself fully in Christ, dying for our sins, and then establishing his kingdom that will one day come in all of its fullness. So we could mark out the Bible as a story, but again, I think that this stuff isn't necessarily wrong. It just misses the point. That's my view. Now, what's the point? Some of you are like, great information. Okay? Regardless of what view you hold regarding prophecy or the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, there is an understanding implicit in both of the views that is absolutely crucial for you to understand. And when I say it, it won't sound all that profound, but when it sinks in, it will be. And here's the truth that I want you to get a hold of God interacts with human history. It doesn't matter what view you have. If you hold this view, awesome. If you don't, that's okay too. But the truth remains the same. God interacts with human history. This world, the world in which we experience time, time, you know that thing that there's never enough of and it's always passing by? Time, this world in which we experience time is precisely the canvas upon which the God of the universe who sits outside of time interacts with human history. He's always bringing in. He's always intervening. He's always coming in to help us in a time of trouble. He's always coming to show us his compassion and his grace and his mercy. And and when we understand that, all of this becomes side issues. You know what? That's why I'm not ready to call you anything, call you any names or call you a false prophet if you align to this and I don't. Who cares? Because the truth that is everlasting and constant in this is that God, the God of the universe, chooses to interact and intervene on behalf of you and I. And listen, I told you it wouldn't be that profound, but I want us to wrap our heads around that. I want us to really allow that to sink in, that God interacts with human history. Let me draw you another box. <laughs> a lot of, think of this as a timeline of history. <laughs> Some of you are like, you, didn't, you dirty dog, you weren't going to do that. So think of this. Let me, let me, I might need those notes later, but for now we're okay. All right. So think of this as history. A lot of times we think about God being above history. But let me tell you, God is not just above history and time and space as we relate to it. God is outside of that. And so it's not just that he's above, he's on every side, and in fact, history, some of you are like, you spelled that wrong. Nope. History is actually his story. His story. And what God is doing is he acts upon this history first as creator. He sees that creation fall and then he comes and he gives us Jesus Christ that the, the, anyone that would have faith in him might be saved. And then, and then he, he breaks the chains of death because this, this whole fallenness, this brokenness of, of, of history of mankind results in a particular end, and that is death. Sin is, is fully playing itself out on these people. And so, Jesus, so so God sends Jesus into the world to be incarnated that we may have a life, that, that, that death may be reversed and replaced with life. And then, and then he sends us, his Holy Spirit, to guide us and to empower us for a holy living you see the point is that history is actually his story in which he is interacting and interceding on your behalf and my behalf and all of these things but let me tell you a, a greater truth that if god intervenes in history this big box all of history humankind then let me tell you the truth that i want you to hear today god interacts with your history because some of you can get around this yeah god is at work but for some of you, this is even a revelation because you've seen God is sort of disconnected and he's just this, this, this big guy in the sky and he doesn't care and he's just left this world to go to hell and just go to pot. And so some of you, just the reality that this is his story is, is profound to you. But some of you can get around that, but, you're, but you always keep God at arm's length. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's awesome that God did that for you and that's, that's great that your life has been changed and, and that's awesome that you've been freed from that addiction and you've been given that hope. That's great, but, but, but not me. God doesn't interact in my life like that. Let me tell you the great truth that if God is the God of history, then he's the God of your history. Oh, come on, somebody. We went from school to preaching now. Okay? That's the truth that I want you to get a hold of. Because whichever view, whichever view you hold of prophecy in the prophetic framework, the end is the same. God intends to bring out of human history something brand new, his new creation. Ezekiel ends that way. Dry bones are made alive and become a vast army. Daniel ends that way. Let me read to you one of the last sections of the book of Daniel, since we won't have time to get to it in this series. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as nothing has ever happened From the beginning of the nations until then, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is written in the book of life, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, resurrection, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and ever. It ends with God's new creation. Revelation ends that way. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And God God establishes his new world. This is the stage of God's story. And there is a thread running through all of human history of God's faithfulness. Amen? Let me tell you we have a harder time getting hold of the fact that, time, that our God is involved in our history, that God is involved in your history. Because time flies, we say. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to build my relationship with God. I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to do these things. We say we're too busy. I'm too busy for this. I'm too busy for that. I'm too busy for relationship. I'm too busy to connect with the community of God that God has, in his grace, placed around me. And I'm too busy. Or life becomes too complicated. Where we have families ending in divorce, we have blended families, we have all these things that, that complicate our life. We have so many social networks we don't know what to do. We have so many devices you know, Goldilocks was like the iPhone is too small, the iPad is too big, but the iPad Mini is just right. Okay, and so we have all these we have all these tablets, we have all these, you know, devices, and, and we just have all these things. That <laughs> Some of you are like that was the best joke he told. Okay, <laughs> you know, we live we live complicated lives, and we say we don't we don't have time for God or religion. We say that life is too boring for God to show up. Some of you think that your life is just too boring for God to care. Let me tell you the good news today. You're complicated, too busy, too much responsibility, don't have time, got to go to work, got to raise the kids, got to make my marriage work, got to make ends meet. Your life is the canvas upon which God loves to paint. And I hope that's an encouraging word for you today. Because you can take this or leave this, whatever. But the real truth of it all is that your everyday life is precisely where God wants to work in you. And as He works in you, He wants to work through you. Did you know that the gift of grace that you're given, in which God works in you, is always intended? so that God might work through you through that grace. Has God done something in your life? He's rescued you out of something. He's shown you his love and his mercy. That is always a gift to you that is to be passed on to someone else. God will rarely, if ever, work in us without the desire to work through us in a similar way. And so your life is the canvas upon which God loves to paint. Your life is the theater of God's activity. And that's what I want you to to know today. Because when we come to the 70 weeks, there's lots of different views. There's lots of different ways of understanding it. And I'm not at all prepared to say that I haven't figured out and I'm not at all prepared to say that those who don't, haven't come to, to, to understand it the way I do are false prophets or got it wrong. I just think we ought to do what they ought to do in Washington. And that is find the common ground. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit therodefc.org and click online giving.